I got to tell you, I love coming to the Master's College uh, to preach, to teach, to be with you. But one of the highlights is always hearing Pete Vargas do, do the announcements. You know, to uh, have him explain the intricacies of bone marrow and uh, sufficient or uh, sustainable buoyancy. That's uh, one of your top ones. Thanks, Pete. Well, last week, due to the uh, amazing generosity of a couple of our friends, my wife and I got to go out to dinner at what is supposed to be the hottest ticket, the hottest restaurant now in L.A. It's called Troy Mech, T-R-O-I-S-M-E-C. I guess it means three men or something like that. And uh, you can't find it. It's in a pizza parlor. still has the pizza sign up, and you walk in, and there are only 24 places for somebody to sit, and it's one of those restaurants where you pay, well, a lot, a lot of money, and you walk out hungry. <laughs> because they do what's called a tasting menu. Now, if you know what a tasting menu is, that's good. That means you're a foodie. But for those of you who don't, and I've, I've had a couple of chances to do it, all of the courses are about one or two bites. And it's kind of like, kind of like modern art. I mean, it really is. The chef tries to do the weirdest things they can with food. We had beets with uh, roasted eel and creme fraiche. Then we had, uh, help me out, Sherilyn, we had riced potatoes with breadcrumbs, Parmesan cheese, and shredded bonita, which is a fish. It went downhill from there. But I was given the word when Pete asked me to speak in chapel that I was supposed to share some things that I know that I wished I had known earlier, to share some things from my life. So we're going to do a tasting menu, uh, four small bites from four amazing theological food groups, okay? We're going to talk about holiness, faith, unconditional election, and prayer, and I'll be done on time. The first one, holiness. I want you to look at 1 Peter 1. Probably the text in the Bible that we would most associate with the call to holiness. Peter writes in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but... As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, the word there, holy, means uh, being dedicated to God, being consecrated to God, uh, reserved for God. If we were to kind of take our time and walk through the Old Testament, we would find that over and over and over, things uh, like the vessels in the temple and the people of Israel we're called to be holy unto God. That holiness has everything to do with God. But here's the problem. I grew up thinking that holiness was all about not sinning. I defined holiness as, first and foremost, not doing what was wrong. But it's not, first and foremost, about what you don't do. Holiness is all about what you do as one who is consecrated to God. Holiness is a, is a sense of going to God, of pursuing him with a passion, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, with the consequence 
that when delighting in God and wanting to be near him and wanting to broaden and deepen my understanding and appreciation of him and my delight in obeying him, the consequence is a growing aversion to sin. But sometimes we just think of holiness as not sinning. Holiness is primarily not avoiding sin, but pursuing God. And it took me a long time to learn that. It's primarily a desire to be more and more for God rather than for the selfish uh, vestiges of our unredeemed flesh. That's what Paul said, or Jesus said in Luke 9. He said, if you want to come after me, you have to first what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then what? Follow me. Follow me closely. It's about the pursuit of God. Tozier's book, The Pursuit of God, if you haven't read it, it's, it's a must read. And it's really small. Holiness is a focus on Jesus, the author and completer of our faith, which the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. You know, run the race with endurance that's set before you, not thinking so much about the things I shouldn't do, but focusing on Jesus. Here's the problem with focusing on things we shouldn't do. Um, I'm trying to lose weight. I just, I'm supposed to share my life with you, right? So... Actually, I'm in shape if you consider oval a shape. <laughs> and so uh, I, have, I have several challenges, one of which is that my wife's a really good cook. And, you know, if I come home and Sherilyn has made these, you know, the chocolate chip cookies, the ones that are kind of fat, and they're still just a little warm and soft, and, you, you know, you break them and the, the chocolate just kind of oozes out, and you can smell it. You can taste it. So they're sitting there on the counter, let's say. And I walk by and I say, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus on not eating those. <laughs> right? You know what happens. When you focus on not doing something, all you can think about is that something. So what I have to do is focus on, well, you know, my goal. To look like Pete Vargas. <laughs> and I think, okay, I'm going to focus on that, and that will keep me from having a desire for the chocolate chip cookies. It's working, by the way. I told my wife not to cook them anymore, and that took care of that. But holiness is more about a passion for what is right in following God, in knowing God, in understanding Him in a, in a deeper and fuller way, and delighting in that, and beginning to realize that as I delight in Christ and as I want to know him in a better, deeper, more convict-filled way, that I have a growing aversion to sin. There's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. That's true. Holiness is a preference for what God has. It's built on a, a radical conviction that there is a, a great delight in being his child. I love that song, let the glory of his name be the passion of the church. Why? Because when the church is passionate for God's glory, there is a natural aversion to anything that is going to somehow uh, siphon the fuel out of his glory or shave the edges off of the gospel. The same thing is true. Holiness is running to God. And the natural consequence of it is that you'll be running away 
from sin. Look what the text says. There's all of these positive action uh, words. Preparing your minds for action. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. The whole, the whole action here is forward. With prepared minds, we are to set our hope on, on the grace that is going to be fully explained and experienced by us when Jesus comes. That's our eschatological focus, and we are running to it. And until that day comes, we are going to delight in being the vessels through whom Christ can declare his glory. And the more and more, as Piper has said, he's glorified, we're going to be satisfied. There's another part to this, though. While aversion to sin is the right and righteous consequence of increasing holiness, the reverse is not usually true. What I mean by that is when we pursue God rightly and consistently, there's a growing sense uh, that, that sin is just an enemy. It's, it's not good. I see through its facade. But if you do the other way, if you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus just on not sinning, it does not necessarily mean or even usually mean that we will grow in those attitudes of heart and life that will cause us to delight more in Christ. In fact, uh, at least in my life, I grew up in a place where it was all about what you didn't do. We had a preoccupation with not sinning, and it, it created a kind of a legalistic system of behavior. And uh, as long as you didn't do these things, then it didn't matter what your heart was. Your behavior became the standard of your spirituality. And I watched as a lot of guys in my generation that I grew up with became real shells of men. The external was fine. Uh, you know, the whitewashed walls and the sepulchers filled with dead men's bones. I watched as friends went through that because they became so good at not doing the things we weren't supposed to do that they never had a passion to pursue Christ and to really love him, you know? True holiness is a passionate striving after God and it begins on the inside and works its way out into godly behavior. So at the end of our first little course here, uh, it's always good to end with Spurgeon. This is what he said. Love to Jesus is the basis of all true piety. And the intensity of this love will ever be the measure of our zeal for his glory. Now get this. Let us love him with all our hearts, and then diligent labor and consistent living will be sure to follow. Did you get the, the order there? You know, follow hard after Jesus, right? Like the psalmist tells us in Psalm 42.1. Be like that, that heart, that deer, that is in a place where there's very little water and he's just, he's just thirsting for that water. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. If you don't feel that way, and I don't feel that way all the time, make that a matter of prayer. Lord, give me a passion for your name, for your glory, for your word, for your mission. And see if it doesn't at the same time begin to diminish the sparkle that sin has for you. Number two, faith. The next question, I guess, follow along from if we're going to pursue Christ, how do we pursue him? And the answer is we're to pursue him by faith. Now, again, I got to share my, my background. I 
I grew up in a place, and I don't think it was my father's fault. He was my pastor my whole life until I came to college, this little school called Los Angeles Baptist. You guys ever heard of that one? Found my wife here. It was great. Uh, the entire student body used to be able to sit in about all those bleachers. And uh, don't pick on us, though. We kept the doors open for you, okay? That's, that's the way that was. But I grew up thinking that faith, belief, was just the ticket you needed to get on the bus to heaven. Okay? Uh, we exhorted unbelievers to believe, to place their faith in Jesus, and they'd be forgiven. But for me, once you're a Christian... Living for Jesus was all about much more than just believing the right things. I already believed him. I already believed that Jesus was God and that he died and he rose. I believed all that. So that was kind of stage one. And if you're done with stage one, what mattered now was our effort, my effort, my duty, my diligence. It wasn't about believing. I'd already done that. Now it was about doing the right things the right way and for the right reasons. So faith was, in my mind, for the unsaved. Once you placed your faith in Jesus, then you got saved, and now it was all about the rules. It was all about working hard to keep them. It seemed really weird to me when I finally figured it out that we were preaching grace to unbelievers and law to believers. You know, it's kind of supposed to be backwards, right? The law comes and convicts, and then the grace overwhelms the conviction with the love and the forgiveness and the redemption of Christ. But what I've come to find out is that faith is actually, it's what I'm supposed to use to live for Christ, not just get on the bus to heaven. Faith is supposed to fuel my diligence, and, and faith, whatever it is, is that which will tune, turn my duty into delight. Uh, when we first got married, my wife and I have been married a long time, 38 years, and uh, when I was about to get married, my brother gave me some advice, said, you know, pick up your socks, that kind of stuff. And so um, I started doing some things out of duty. One of them, we got married um, little, a few years later. You got time for this? Okay. I like to tell stories. Sherilyn was in a choir, and she was at our church, and on Wednesday night, she'd go to choir, and I'd stay home and watch Sports Center or something. But I noticed on those nights that we'd get done with dinner, and we were always in a hurry, and all the dishes would be left, and the cupboards are open, and the, you know, the counters are dirty, and she'd go. So one time I thought, eh, I suppose to, I probably ought to do the dishes. I mean, you know. And so I did. And I washed the counters off, and I closed the cupboards and put everything away. Mostly I just scraped and threw them in the dishwasher, but it looked really good. Turned on some little lights that she had in the kitchen, and I'm sitting on the couch. She comes in from the garage. She looks at me. She looks at the kitchen. It's all clean, and she goes, oh, honey, thank you. And it progressed from there. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> so what happened was... What happened was something that I did out of duty actually became something delightful, right? She just came down and sat by me and we finished watching Sports Center. That's all. Come on, you guys. <laughs> Here's what I want to tell you about faith. 
When you come to understand that we're to live by faith and you understand what faith is, it is what turns duty into delight. Let me show you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 32, the writer is talking to a group of people who are under persecution. They're, they're under pressure. And he's calling them to remember. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he said, you, you've gone through inter- intense pressure. You've seen some of your congregation be thrown in prison, and you've continued to align yourself with them, even at great risk. You've even watched as uh, outsiders have come in and stolen your stuff. They are gradually diminishing the quality of your life, and yet you have had endurance, you've had confidence. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So what he's saying is that up to this point, he said, the reason you have been able to stand fast against the storms of persecution and suffering, that you have aligned yourself with those who were in prison at great risk, the reason is because you've been living by faith, that faith is not just what got you on the bus to heaven, it is what is fueling the way you live, the decisions you make, the way you walk, the way you talk, everything is being fueled by whatever faith is. He said, my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The New American Standard, I think, says it best. Those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I can still remember the first time I started looking at this, and I realized that following Christ well pursuing him had everything to do with this word faith and so I had to figure out what faith was what does it mean to live by what is faith is it just belief well I think we find the answers if we keep going in Hebrews 11 and you know Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the faith's hall of fame right Uh, I we should never call it that because it makes it seem like those who are enumerated in Hebrews 11, are somehow super-Christians, right? No. They're ordinary people who did extraordinary things through faith. They weren't extraordinary people. They were people like you and I who, because of their deepening conviction and assurance about who God is and what God does for those who, who constantly and consistently pursue him, They were able to step out and attempt great things for God and expect great things from God by faith. We're to live by faith. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. What is faith? Look at Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for conviction of things not seen. So 
We go down to verse six, we find something else about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, you probably already know all this, right? I'm just sharing from my life that for me, the idea of faith as a believer had taken second place to effort, to duty. I was doing it for several reasons. Number one, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. But number two, I was hoping to keep God off my back. You ever feel that way? If I do this and this and this, then God will leave me alone. What a horrible way to live. Especially if God is to be our refuge. If Christ is to be the one that we want to follow very closely. We want to be near to him. The nearness of God is my good. But I had somehow gotten off track and I began to think, I just want to do enough to keep God from disciplining me so that I can live what I think is the kind of life I want to live as a mediocre couch potato Christian. Unfortunately, I think that is uh, becoming more and more um, prevalent in our day. So when we look at this, what we find is that faith is really an assurance about God. It's a conviction regarding the truth of God. It's a, it's a settled belief in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And here's the great part. He rewards those who seek him. So faith is a, is a radical conviction that seeking after God, walking the path of obedience, is actually my best option. And so I put together a little little definition of faith for, for my own purposes, and it's this, that faith isn't just the belief that got me on the bus. Faith is a life-dominating conviction that what God has for me through obedience is better by far than anything this world or Satan can offer me. And for me, it's, uh, it's kind of like the Robert Frost poem, you know, there are two roads diverged in the yellow wood. And so it, there are constant opportunities in my life where I come to a decision point in my day and I look down the road of obedience. Maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's 4.30 in the afternoon and I still have some exegetical work to do but I'm running out of steam, laziness is camped on my shoulder and I think, oh, you know what, I'll just, I'll just do the minimum here, get through it and then on Sunday I'll just wing it. Or maybe it's that. Uh, maybe it's any other kind of decision, temptation that faces me. And I look down the road of obedience, and it looks hard. It is dark and painful. Um, I just joined a CrossFit gym, speaking of painful. <laughs> and three times a week at 6 a.m., I get up and go, and I get there, and the road of commitment takes me, <laughs> every bone and every muscle in my body screams at me. Kind of like the piano was screaming when Evan was playing, right? <laughs> By the way, Evan, how do, you, how do you memorize that? That's incredible. But I know that when I go, if I just keep going and force myself to go through it, that what happens is as I'm driving home, I actually feel better. But I look down the road of obedience sometimes, and it doesn't look like it'll get me anywhere I want to go. Then I look down the road of disobedience, and it's sunny, right? It's beautiful. It's pleasurable. By the way, it's a, it's a facade. 
We know that. And so at that point, I stand at a decision point, and I either am going to be a faithful believer and believing that what God has for me through obedience is always better, or in that moment, I'm going to be an unbelieving believer. That is, not that I don't any longer believe the things that got me on the bus, but I'm now not acting in faith. I'm now not believing that what God has for me through obedience is better. To live by faith is an ever-expanding, ever-deepening, ever-broadening understanding of, appreciation of, and commitment to the fact that what God has for me in obedience is always better. Always better. To live by faith is to grow that. To grow a faith that continually sees that which God offers as best, as right. It improves our spiritual vision so that we see the delight that's found at the other side of duty. And when we look at sin, we see through the facade to see that it's poison to us. That's what a growing, deepening, broadening faith will do. That's why you're here at the Master's College. Because you're going you're gonna to dig down deep into the foundations of God's word. And you're going to let that water of God's word flow over you. And it's going to broaden your appreciation for God. It's going gonna, it's gonna to focus your spiritual vision so that you can see through all the facades that Satan is going to throw at you. As you go out to accomplish the mission of Christ. Third. Unconditional election. Yes. Unconditional election. I just want to say something about it. I'm for it. Here's another thing I wish I'd learned so much earlier in my life. Uh, you know what unconditional election is. It's the idea that God's choice of who he was going to save from before the foundation of the world was not in any way predicated on any condition that we could meet. It was unconditional. It wasn't that he looked ahead and saw our, our faith. It wasn't that he looked ahead and saw if we could play the piano well or uh, anything. He chose us for reasons known only to himself. That's unconditional election. You know the texts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Acts 13, 48, after Paul and uh, Barnabas had preached in Pisidian Antioch and said the Gentiles are now going to be uh, the, the focus of our gospel ministry. It says the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is saying, you know what? Uh, the Jews want signs and the Gentiles want this spellbinding rhetoric. But... We've decided to give everybody what nobody wanted. We're going to preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. But to those who are called, those who are chosen and elect before the foundation of the world, the gospel becomes the power that the Jews wanted and the wisdom that the Greeks were seeking. And then one of my favorites is written to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Timothy is a, is a pastor who's burned out. He's ashamed of the gospel. He's timid. He's back on his heels because he doesn't want to suffer. 
And instead of Paul saying, why don't you go on a sabbatical or read a Eugene Peterson book, he instead takes him to a short, short course on the gospel, and he says this, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now, I know here at the Master's College, I don't have to prove the validity of unconditional election, but here's what I want to tell you. The doctrine of unconditional election is too important to be left to the theologians. It's too important to be left in the back halls of theological controversy. Unconditional election is one, uh, besides the content of the gospel, unconditional election is the single most important element for us to keep in mind as we are out there in the normal rhythms of our lives as everyday evangelists intersecting with people who need Jesus. And I'll tell you why in four minutes or less. Unconditional election grants us amazing confidence in evangelism. Why? Because God has already determined that he's going to save a company that, according to John in Revelation, no man can number from every tribe, every tongue, every nation under heaven. So if you are planning to go to Zimbabwe or Yemen or any place else, guess what? God's already been there. His work is already all the way down the road ahead of you. And he has begun drawing people to Jesus Christ, whom he has chosen for reasons only known to himself, that he would save from before the foundation of the world. He's planted the seeds. He's going to grow them to a harvest. You just get to go out there and be part of the harvesting team. Now, if you don't believe in unconditional election, you're going to go out there and wonder, am I good enough? You see, unconditional election also takes away the fear of rejection. Because all those God has chosen for salvation will one day turn to Christ. That's great, isn't it? I have a job where the final completion and fulfillment of the mission has already been guaranteed by Almighty God. So if people reject us, it merely means that they are not yet been fully drawn to Christ. And whether or not they are in the end and end up in the family of God, guess what? That's God's doing. If you understand unconditional election, it frees us up to do evangelism. It frees us from the fear of rejection. The third thing, it allows us to remain confident in the gospel and not give in to the cultural temptations to make it more palatable. See, if I don't believe that God is the one who saves sinners and I somehow believe that it's up to me to, uh, you know, kind of motivate or leverage or shoehorn them into the right decision, then I might, you know, I might change the product just a little bit to fit what they're looking for. Kind of like if you're selling cars. You don't tell them what the car's about. You hear them say, hey, this is what I want in a car. This is what I'm looking for. This is how many people are going to be in it. How far I have to drive. How much I want to pay. And then a good salesman just says, here's the one that fits your need. That is the huge temptation in our world today with the gospel. Let's find what people will respond to and let's give it to them wrapped up in Jesus. And then we can boast about the sizes of our churches. But unconditional election says, no, God's going to use the gospel. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's 
the power of God to salvation. Well, if he's not ashamed of it, two things. Number one, it means there's something about it that the rank and file might see as worthy of shame. And it's always going to be that way. And here's why. God has asked us to kind of dig the Grand Canyon with a teaspoon. Because it doesn't look like the message of the gospel would do anything. It looks like foolishness. And it looks like weakness. And in our day, it looks like, uh, you know, an anti-intellectual myth. So guess what? When we give it in its purity and God uses it, he gets the glory. I can smile about that. Well, fourth, prayer. So our last course. Are you full? Holiness, faith, unconditional election, and now prayer. I, I would tell you that perhaps the most intensely personal thing I have learned over the years, and actually just in the last year or so, is about prayer. Uh, I recently discovered even though I knew it before, but I had been in denial that I am a professional prayer. Uh, if there were support groups, I'd go, hi, my name is David, and I'm addicted to cliches, right? I was addicted to, Lord, thank you for this day, and thank you for this, and thank you for letting us be here. And I was addicted to trying for the ums. You know what ums are? You know, you're in a, you're in a Bible study, and everybody's going to pray, and uh, someone else is praying, and they say something really great, and you go, mm, mm, yeah, mm. <laughs> So when you're like three down the line, because you're praying around the circle, and it's going to be your turn, you're thinking, okay, she prayed about that, and he prayed about that, but I'm going to pray this, and I'm, I'm kind of rehearsing it, because I want to get, mm, oh, mm, mm. And what about the newscaster prayer? You know that one? Oh, Lord, we want to pray for Sam. You know that he lost his job for the third time, and he's now got six interviews in three states. And we're just hoping he has, you know, he needs money for gas. And, and so I hope that, you know, somebody in the room is going to pay for that, the newscaster. Yeah. And then there's the preacher prayer. You know the preacher prayer? Oh, Lord, we thank you for that hit pile uh, in uh, Micah. And I just hope that everyone in this room realizes, you know, that the passive perfect uh, shenanigans that are going on in Colossians are really, you know, okay, and, and just kind of going, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> then there's the performance prayer, and now our grand and heavenly father, <laughs> as we bend our knees in adoration of your glory, it's like spoken word stuff, right? What I found in my praying is all of those plus I was heavy on requests. I told you I met my wife here. I still remember uh, one of the first times I saw her, really, as more than a friend. Now, think about, you know, if you've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend or you'd like to, and you finally see that person across the hallway or whatever. And you see them and you say, wow, that, uh, is your first thought, I wonder how I can get them to give me 20 bucks. Is that, that's not your first thought. So why do we treat God that way? Why do we say, here he is, the most amazing, infinitely good, righteous, just, holy, beautiful uh, being in the universe, 
the one from whom we gain all things. He is the source of all good things in us. Why is it that our first inclination is to say, I'm going to try and see if I can get him to give me something? We wouldn't treat anybody we liked that way. We have turned prayer away from being an opportunity of communion and reflection and adoration and relationship into a slot machine. We put in enough moments, we put in enough righteous works, and we hope that when we pull the prayer handle, out comes blessing. I'm ashamed of that. I have prayed from childhood. I have preached on it. I've taught on it. I've written on it, taught my kids to pray. I've written prayers, and up until about a year ago, I would have considered myself a bit of an expert. Turns out I actually didn't know how to pray. So here's what I want to tell you. Your praying is the most accurate representation of your theology. The consistency of your prayers, the content of your prayers, the fervency of your prayers, the enjoyment you have in praying is the most accurate measurement and representation of what you truly believe theologically. If you truly believe that God is to be blessed, that he is great, that he is all-loving, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, if you believe all of those things that you study in Theology One, it will shape your prayer in alignment with that. Do you exist for God or does he exist for you? Is God your majestic sovereign king or your crisis consultant and life coach? Too much of our praying is simply trying to get God to do something for us, to give us something, to keep something bad from happening to us, or otherwise keep our lives healthy, happy, and successful. If you're feeling that same way, I would point you to Tim Keller's book, catchy title, Prayer. He says, prayer is a continuation of the conversation we begin when we read scripture. It's a conversation. It's that desire when you, when you see that girl or that guy or your wife or whoever it is, your husband, and you see them and you, you, you get that flutter, I, I just want to be with them. I just want to go home early and I, I just want to sit out on our back porch, our back deck with my wife and talk about the day. Why? Because to be near to her is rejuvenating. But the nearness of God is even greater. And we have somehow turned the invitation away. Prayer is also a way to make our requests known to God, but as Keller says, when we pray, remember, God's either going to give us what we ask for, or he's going to give us what we should have asked for if we knew all that he knows. Because prayer is such a vital and authentic display of our soul's understanding and adoration of God, my praying, my consistency, fervency, my content is the most accurate measurement of really what my theology is. Your attitude in prayer will display your view of the majesty and sovereignty of God as well as your own frailty as a sinner. The content of your prayers will demonstrate the degree to which you've denied yourself, taken up your cross and are following Christ. It'll make plain the true passions of your heart and it'll display how much you are invested in the mission of Christ. The frequency of your praying will be an indication of how much you actually think you are dependent on Christ. So what I'd like to do is close in prayer. 
And I have found that in my life, the best way to be led in prayer is to let God lead it. So I've learned to pray through scripture. So we're going to close as I'm going to pray through Psalm 63. Oh God, you are our God. We understand that. And Lord, we wish that we earnestly would seek you more, that we would actually thirst for you more. Lord, give us a thirst for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. Lord, we, we've been to church, we've been in your sanctuary, we've beheld your power and your glory, we've sung about it, and we've experienced the fact that your steadfast love is actually better than life, and we've praised you with our lips, and yet, we long for our souls to be satisfied with that. That it would be more than just music. It would actually be an inner motivation and, and growing maturity. Lord, that our mouths would praise you with joyful lips, not just from habit, but because we just can't bear not to. And when we end our day in our beds and we are finishing the day with you, Father, remind us that you watch over us all night and that you are our constant help and that... One day, in the very shadow of your wings, we will sing eternally for joy. Give us glimpses of that now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.